You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is J Mac, live in St. Louis. And Sam Wade in Los Angeles. And we are here today to talk to you about our EP that was recently released via all streaming services. I guess, Sam, you could give us a little bit of detail on that with this press release that we have a press agent that wrote this press release up. And after we read the press release, we're going to play you our first single off said EP, Tomorrow Never Knows, number one, and just give you a little behind-the-scenes info on how the sausage was made. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Tomorrow Never Knows announces the release of its first EP, number one, available for download and stream on music platforms on November 13th, 2020. Just like to mention that was Friday the 13th. I thought that was cool how that worked out. I love Um, it. Tomorrow Never Knows is a collaboration of singer-songwriters Sam Wade and Jeremy McDonald, friends of nearly 30 years who originated the EP songs while in their teens, but came together again in 2020 to finally finish what they started. The EP was mastered at Abbey Road Studios in London, which was important given that the EP is heavily influenced by the psychedelic sounds of the Beatles. It's true, it is. Sam Wade is a singer-songwriter and producer and a previous frontman of several bands, including Saturn V Rockets and Controlled Fires. He also toured with Dallas-based band Oil Boom. Jeremy McDonald is a singer-songwriter and producer and previous frontman for the band The Stash in St. Louis. He is a long-standing podcast producer and has maintained, maintained a public presence in raising awareness and education about life with early-onset Parkinson's. Also true. This number one EP took a mystical journey uh, from the mountains of India to the far reaches of space, according to McDonald. Uh, that's a that's a pretty good quote there, uh, Jeremy. <laughs> Wade states that it took it took on a life of its own with an expression of something new and different. Mine's boring compared to your quote. What I should have had a, a spicier quote. Anyway, anyway, the music of tomorrow never knows is a feast for the ears, distinguished by the sounds of the Indian sitar an instrument McDonald's studied with virtuoso Imrat Khan. The EP features four atmospheric space rock songs meant to transport the listener to another place. Wade and McDonald call this unique combination of influences and ideas cosmic alternative music. It's true. We've had that name since we were teenagers. Am I right? Absolutely. The Drifter is an ambient ballad about exploring the universe. 666 is a wild reimagination of the apocalyptic Larry Norman song. Ascend, the heaviest song in the mix, has more in common with stoner rock, while Alone on the Moon taps into the angst of early 70s hard rock. That's it. That's a pretty good press release, man. I mean, we sound like we know what we're doing at least a little bit. No, we got, we got, a, we got a hell of a press agent, I got to tell you that. I've never had a press release in my life. I've done some stuff that might have... <laughs> Might have warranted uh, an uh, an arrest affidavit or something, but <laughs> never a press release. <laughs> Let's take a minute here 
to talk before we play this song that we're getting ready to play from EP number one, 666. Now, this was the first single and the only song on the EP that we did not write. And it was written by the great and late Larry Norman, who was uh, somewhat, I guess you could say he was the father of Christian rock. I don't really know of anybody doing Christian rock before Larry Norman. I think that's a, an apt, like an accurate statement. Would you not agree? Well, I think it's uh, that's definitely what his marketing said. I think that's what everybody says. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think he he saw, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, a field that hadn't been tapped into before and and uh, and had uh, that associated with his faith. And, and uh, yeah, I guess you could say he was one of the first to do that. I know he was on um, he was on several mainstream labels before that. So it was probably a pretty novel thing at the time. I don't think it was happening a lot. I will say you got to give him you got to give him props for being I guess the leader of the Jesus rock movement or the Jesus movement. He was forefront in that to my to my recollection. My parents knew who he was and I'm 44 and they they were growing by like around the time I was born. I was born in 76. This song came out in 1975. So my parents knew of Larry Norman and the the charismatic I guess Christian circles we moved in knew of Larry Norman. And I guess the big song that he was known for was I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And we'll get into some Larry Norman talk in a later episode, but just to just to clue our listeners in, he was a big deal for a minute, at least among Christian people. I think that he had a lot of respect within the uh within you know, with a lot of people in the industry, but I think uh, you know, from the stories that you hear about him, it's possible that he was a, a pretty like hard character to get along with sometimes and he probably rubbed people the wrong way. But one thing that is for sure that you can see comes through in his music and his writings and, and just, you know, what's out there is that uh, he was very passionate about what he did. And I think that he was really a creative genius. Um, it, I think that uh, one of the things that really stands out and we'll talk about this at some point is how he encoded like all these messages and things into his music, which I think is super weird uh, in a, in a cool way. Um, other bands I know of doing things like that are Pink Floyd and Radiohead. So it's kind of cool that he's in that kind of catalog of having Easter eggs built into his music as well. So, Well, and I will say this, this song 666 seems like a bad title for something coming out in Christian rock. But if you only, if you only view the title, you only read the title, you're missing the entire point of the song. And that's kind of what we tried to do and this is sort of pick a a Larry Norman song people had not heard something that was not instantly recognizable to Larry Norman people that knew I wish we'd all, I, I, I wish we'd all been ready and why should the devil have all the good music kind of his two big songs so why don't we play the song and then we'll talk a little bit about it all right here we go Temple with gold in his hands, he 
All right, the first thing I noticed about this song, I got to give props to you for an incredible bass line. Now, tell me about the bass guitar you played that on. I can't really tell you about the bass guitar without us talking about where like the main musical influence came from, which I'm sure you'll be happy to as well. But we we were de- like our music that we make since we were kids has been influenced by like druggy Beatles music. There's no doubt about it, right? Um, and this song specifically, uh, you know, not uh, mistakenly, uh, it was based on kind of the sounds of, of the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows, which again is why we call it the band Tomorrow Never Knows. But we did this a while ago, right? Like we, it was one of the first things that we did uh, that we uh, recorded together and maybe pretty much the first thing we did again after years, right? Well, uh, we did a few like demos and workups. I think of actually "Tomorrow Never Knows" the uh, the Beatles song, but this was the first real collaboration. This was done about a year ago. It's 2020 now. I think 2019, and we didn't really know what to do with it, so we kind of put it in our in our pocket and thought we'll we'll figure out what to do with this at some point. That's right. Um, and it just kind of sat there dormant for a while. And, but you know, when we first got the got the idea down, um, you had the idea. Uh, of just having like this drone in the background and just like this consistent sound. And I was like, well, that's a perfect way to do like this um, kind of fancy rhythmic bass line on top. That's really inspired by like Paul McCartney. So I actually played that, that bass line on a, on a a Hofner bass. Like maybe he would have technically, I think he would have been playing it on a, on a Rickenbacker at the time for all you Beatles nerds that might be listening. But I decided to do on a, on a, on a, on a Hofner bass for that very reason. And to get like that really deep kind of woody sound. And I think it really works well in the song. No, it does work well. And I remember at the time we were talking about doing a complete like four song EP of Larry Norman songs. And you sent me a list. And the one that jumped out at me was one that I hadn't really thought about much because it's like I said, it's a deep cut of Larry Norman 666. And I thought, I was listening to his version of it, and you can, if you want to go up to YouTube, you can type in Larry Norman 666, and, and you can hear the difference between the two versions. But my thought was to take an Indian raga approach and basically take out the cording and make it nothing but one solid drone through the whole thing. And I remember you, I remember like a light bulb went off in your head, and you were like, oh my God. And that's kind of what everything came from was sort of the reimagining of, of it as a rag, as a raga. Am I right? Uh, that's totally uh, spot on. Um, I'm actually curious for also any listeners, um, if you could just like quickly explain what a raga is, because I think that it's something that, you know, is not really well known in Western music. And if you could say it quickly, I think people would, would kind of dig to hear what that is. We will get into this in a later episode, but... For, I guess, just to break it down, Western music is based on harmony. Chords, harmony, singing. In Indian music, there are no chords. It's a, you, you tune your instrument to one... Hmm. Well, and you would say, well, that sounds pretty boring. Well, that's where the melody becomes far more evolved in Indian music than it ever will be in Western music, where there are scales, which are patterns of notes which we have in Western music, but in Indian music, there may be a set a set of notes for going up the neck and a set a different set of notes for going down the neck. And they're 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 time I guess you could say they're set up to be played at different times of the day, certain vibrations. 
there's evening ragas, there's morning ragas, there's late afternoon ragas. There's there's probably thousands of ragas, and there, there's there's very strict rules regarding how you play a raga. Now, Larry Norman never envisioned 666 as a raga, so I don't know what raga it is. It's probably just a, just a Western scale that we played to a drone. But yeah, it's a complicated thing, and I'll actually I've actually found a really good definition of it on Imrat Khan, one of Imrat Khan's CDs that I have, my teacher. So we'll get into that too, and we'll get into that in another episode. But yeah, it's basically just a completely different way of looking at music. No chords. Like I said, what if we took the melody of six sixty six and took the chords out, and you just sing it across them, which really gave it a very otherworldly, foreign feel. I totally agree, man. And that's uh, thanks for for explaining that because I think that that that's part of what makes the song so cool. And I think that you know, hearing you explain that there's like a purpose to the scales in Indian music, like, you know, certain ones for the day and certain ones for the evening and different frequencies. It's very purposeful in the way that they assemble their music. Um, just, you know, not that Western music isn't, but it's just in a different way. Like it ties into your life. We have music like that here, but typically you, you put on the radio, it's either you want to listen to a banger or you listen to like something that you can like, really you know scream in your car when you're frustrated stuck in traffic but uh i think that it definitely puts a puts a good undercurrent for this song since it's such a odd lyric too like it's a dark song and the video that we made to go with it people are gonna have to check out the video as well um because i think that's it's a perfect fit for the song don't you think i mean obviously you're the one that that starred in it too so Oh yeah, I I will say that in 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 the in the halls of great actors there will be Brando, there will be Pacino, there will be Lawrence Olivier, and there will be J Mac. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And my if if you could hear the like and you heard it because you had the raw footage, you can hear my lady laughing in the background, and I'm like, stop it! I'm trying to be serious here, <laughs> and I almost broke for a minute, but I'm like. Screw that! I'm just gonna keep going. It actually works perfectly because um, uh, you know maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, there is a shot in the video where you almost break because you smile, and it works perfectly because it actually looks like you're going mad. <laughs> so it was a it was a fortuitous thing. <laughs> to to speak to the intro, I remember like the first verse was was sung and i told you like uh, basically a year after i was like i'm not happy with that first verse i feel like it needs something else so i did this voiceover and when i first told my lady that she goes oh are you bono now and i was like hey now is that supposed to be an insult and, but it does sound a little bit like bullet the blue sky or something like that it's it does have a u2 feel a little bit there's a little vibe of that would you not agree yeah i'm cool with that i love you too Okay, so let's talk about where the song goes from there. Uh, there's there's a verse and then a second verse where the harmony comes in, and then you had this idea, let's get really weird in the middle of this song, and I was like, uh, explain weird, and then you proceeded to show me this really psychedelic, like it's it's right out of a Beatles song, right out of a Beatles song. Like it's it's just like, it's a, what is it, like 16 bars of just drone and weird stuff going on? Explain how you how you crafted that part. Well, uh, definitely. And, you know, if we're talking about influences on our music, um, first of all, I think that uh, I personally feel like it definitely has enough originality in there. But I'm the kind of like writer 
that likes to pay attention to, uh, you know, and give credit to people that have influenced the way that I like to work and, you know, and you're the same way. So on that, on that little spot, like that, the, the, the 16 bars of weirdness, I'm actually pulling in just a little bit of Radiohead into that too. Um, yeah, I know we're saying we're like the Beatles. We're like fuck Radiohead. <laughs> we're like, you know, but it's true. I brought a little bit of the national anthem from Kid A in there. So that's where that came from. Just wanted to kind of be weird, like Tom York for just like, you know, 20 seconds. Well, you know, I've heard this said by more than one person. The the one I heard it did that I remember the most was Noel Gallagher, who gets accused of ripping off the Beatles a lot. He goes, he goes, people that make the best music have the best record collections, meaning everybody steals from somebody. Look at Zeppelin. Zeppelin like ripped off a lot of old African American black blues singers, did something completely different with it. Suddenly it was like, wow, we've never heard this before. Yeah, you had it, just it was just different. So I'm a big believer in taking a little bit from here and a little bit from here and a little bit from here, mixing it all up to where you're not exactly sure where you've heard it before. Does that make sense? makes a lot of sense, man. And if you think about it, that's how genres are developed. By people taking ideas that they dig and like pulling it into their music. And enough people do a similar thing, then it becomes a genre. So uh, I'm totally cool with that. You know, and I totally agree. You know, best the best record collection uh, equation is a really good metaphor for that. So, and then, you know, let's, this is, yeah. And then we'll move on to the second half of the song, which is where I decided to take a much more aggressive approach vocally. And initially it was kind of droney and kind of soft and harmonizing, but I felt like as the song built, there needs to be a frenzy. This guy has found out he's essentially sold his soul to the devil. And just like the video reflects, the man is going mad. And that's why I really, I really, I had to warm up my voice to get that high because I normally don't sing that high. And so, you, like, for anybody who doesn't sing, you can't just go like straight up Brian Johnson from ACDC. You got to warm that up a little bit. Now, I can't do Brian Johnson, but I felt like the scream was necessary for the desperation of that second half. And you did a phenomenal job of putting an echo on it and making it sound like I'm like I'm, I'm like in a padded room or like an insane asylum. It's very very dis- disconcerting when you hear the the echoes bouncing off the walls and this kind of crazed maniac saying uh, there was blood in his pockets and death in his eyes and it just just the imagery of the words my singing and then then what you did with it is really really creepy. Yeah, man. Thanks. Uh, I think. But yeah, thanks. No, seriously though, um, you know, one of the other that that section reminds me of kind of the the inspiration behind that part, right? And that also comes from the recording of of Tomorrow Never Know. So I think one of the things that we'll do a lot on the show from time to time is tell stories about the Beatles and things that we've heard about them because they're legendary and they've influenced everything that we do. And uh one of the things that I'm reminded, I was reading a book. I think uh, maybe you've read this too. Tell me if I'm wrong. But um, Jeff Emmerich, who was the Beatles recording engineer um, from when he was very young age, I think he was between 17 and 19 when he became the Beatles engineer or something crazy like that. And it's a funny story about how he actually became the engineer. But let's just say on his first day, um, they were recording uh, – I believe Tomorrow Never Knows was his first day as lead engineer for the Beatles. So sessions for Revolver were starting. And their first engineer, Norman Smith, was out of the picture. So here he was, and they're trying to get weird 
sounds and they did crazy things like all the time this is where it starts to get good for me with the beatles because they just start experimenting in the studio and they they were doing things like breaking the rules like emi like had all of these rules about how close you could put a microphone to a to a kick drum or like to like a horn or to a violin it was all about like keeping sure that their mics were in tip-top shape and, and things and, and they were just breaking the rules all over the place because at this point you know they were the biggest thing in the world uh at least in music and um they just did what they wanted. And one of my favorite things about the recording of that song, Tomorrow Never Knows, was when it came to John Lennon's um, third verse singing. He apparently, from what I understand, he would like say weird metaphors. And I can relate to this personally. It's like sometimes I say things to other collaborators and they don't know what that even means. And he said, I want to sound like the Dalai Lama shouting from the mountaintops or something like that. And his idea for the solution was to tie a rope to the ceiling <laughs> and then have them spin him around a microphone so it sounded like it was going around a microphone, which is insane, right? They're like, no, we're not going to do that. That's, you know, it's a big two-story studio. Like, the, the they're, yeah, that's not going to happen. But instead, what one of the other uh, assistant engineers came up with the idea to take a, a Leslie speaker, which is a, a speaker that spins inside of this cabinet, and that's what they use to make organs sound the way they sound. He wired it up and then did that for the vocal, and then that's what they record the sound with. So I took that same approach to your vocal to weird it out, just apply some weird effects. And I think there's a spinning speaker effect on there that I, I actually got from that I, from that song. I do remember that story because you did recommend the book to me, and I read it front to back. I think it took me a week to get through, and it's fascinating. And for people, I mean, for people who don't do recording, um, I guess the thing I would say is like, we take for granted so many of the things that are like the Beatles were on the forefront of like, I can't even imagine going into a studio and having the engineer tell me, well, that mic has to be three inches away from the, the speaker cone. Well, what if I wanted to, what if I wanted to sound real echoey? Maybe I can put it back and make it fainter. Maybe I can put it right up on the cone and get it distorted. The Beatles broke the rules and made new new ones, I should say, and that's that sounds like Lennon when he's like spin me around, and that that shows the lengths that the Beatles were, <laughs> were willing to go to to get new sounds. And you're right, there is definitely, I think, I think it was probably more than just subconscious, but that's why we picked Tomorrow Never Knows as the name of the band. That was the song for me where the Beatles really turned into something else. Would you not agree? They were on the way on Rubber Soul, and when I heard Norwegian Wood with the sitar, that was really like, wow, what is this? But when Tomorrow Never Knows comes on, it's the perfect perfect album closer. How do you follow that? There's no way to follow that song. Not not in 1966 when Revolver was released. That and And just to hear... The story about how, and we're getting a little off here, but how the story about how they they were the first to really use loops. They had they had tape loops running all over the studio to get those weird effects. And uh, I would like to think that a little bit. I don't know if the, I don't know that we're genius level. I don't. Th- I, I will say we're not genius level, but I would like to feel like the influence that the Beatles have have had on us makes the the music we have done better. You know what I'm saying? It makes it. It feels it feels to me like it's a little bit another level than what we've ever done before. And we've done some good stuff, but together and with Tomorrow Never Knows, it really takes it to a whole different place. Well, I think we got really lucky because it definitely, to me at least, and you know, as more people hear it, they, they could tell me if I'm just full of shit or not. But 
I think it's it's more than the sum of its parts is the way it came across to me. So I'm really proud of it, and I'm glad that it's out there. And uh, I hope that people are digging it because it's it's definitely some sounds that don't get hear, heard very often. Well, the tambora, which is the Indian drone instrument, certainly doesn't. I I feel it's an underused instrument. It's so it's so beautiful and hypnotizing. I really feel like that. I guess because more Western music isn't like tuned that way, but it's it's a beautiful. I mean, when those drones come on in the beginning, and I layered them like. I think I layered like five or six drones over all like over the top of each other, so you get that huge wall of sound, which is sort of like within you, without you. When the drones come on on that song, um, but there's definitely um, and if you like the the Indian touch with that, you're gonna love the rest of the EP because the sitar becomes more of a prominent instrument in the later in the later songs, and I'd like I would like to think my sitar teacher Imrat Khan is looking down from heaven. And uh, or the uh, the afterlife and being and, and saying you've done well, you know, because he was always he always was frustrated at the lack of appreci- appreciation that Westerners had for sitar, and it's like because they have not heard it put in a, in a way that they can understand. And I would like to think that what we've done specifically with this EP, and I guess in generally um, with six sixty six, although it doesn't feature that prominent. That it, it does bring something from another another world closer to people's hearts. I couldn't have said it better, man. Absolutely. And I know the EP hasn't come out yet, so by the time people hear this, it will be out. But I'm pumped, dude. I really am pumped. And I, I'm just excited for people to hear it. And by the time this comes out, there will still be people that haven't heard it yet. So I'm, I'm really excited to have done all this work and have it come to fruition after all these years. And we haven't even got into some of the some of the songs we wrote as as kids. As kids. Dude, I mean, like, look, we got really lucky with these songs. Okay. Like, I, I'm not, I I don't know. I think we're good at what we do. I'm proud of that. I, I think we work really hard to get there. But it still kind of blows my mind that some of the songs that we wrote when we were like 14, 15 years old still sound pretty good. I don't know why that really shouldn't surprise me. A lot of a lot of amazing songs that everybody loved were written by teenagers and early 20-somethings, right? Well, I mean, but it's just kind of cool that we've had had a chance to rediscover them, you know. Well, and it it's it's pretty exciting and then it also makes me intimidated for number 2. <laughs> How do we top this? You know what I'm saying? But let's cross that bridge when we come to it. You know what I mean? I think we got to come up with a better name for the second one than number 2. No, it can't be number two. I think we're setting ourselves up for <laughs> we're setting ourselves up for failure. There. C- call it Deuce, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh man, Le Deuce. All right, so you think think we got a Part show, two. dude? Think we got a show? I'm I'm happy with this this episode. I felt like we went to a lot of th- different areas, and I can't wait to get on to the next one. I would just like to say to our listeners, every week. You don't, we, we, it's not always going to be about music. We've got a topic coming up, which we probably will record here in the next few days, which is way off anything I ever thought I'd be talking about on a podcast, but it's so damn weird and interesting. I think it, I think it goes with the theme of tomorrow never knows and two tape decks and a mixer mixing board and like all the, just like we're, we're curious people. We like to take little rabbit holes down places, see where, see where things go. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, 
it's incredibly interesting to mix up what we just accept as reality and, and just be open to the possibility that something else might be going on between things. We'll talk about that stuff. I love a good conspiracy theory, too. I'm not saying that I buy into most of them, but it's fun to talk about. So, yeah, we'll talk about that stuff. But it'll always be through the lens of music. Through the lens of music. I'm Jay Mack in St. Louis. Sam Wade in Los Angeles. Saying, saying stay, stay cosmic. Stay cosmic. Stay <laughs> cosmic.